So here we are. Uh, I'm going to pray today because um, this is uh, what I'm going to teach you for the first few minutes. Uh, seriously, is one of the hardest. Just turn the turn the knob, uh, knob just a smidgen. Okay, uh, this is really one of the most challenging theological ideas in the entire New Testament. What you're going to learn, and I have like you know 20 minutes to do this. And then Zeb is going to come and, and uh, correct all my errors. But I really, I really want you to um, rely on the Holy Spirit today in the first part, as always. But this is challenging theology, and I want you to feel free to ask questions, too. There's no wrong questions, or you can say anything you want. But I, I want to have a little bit of interaction on this because it's that important. So having said all of that, let's pray together. Holy, 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 you are God, and we come with uh, complete contrition and submission and also with joy on this Pentecost Sunday. We celebrate the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that was done so many years ago and yet is also given to us every moment as we open ourselves to you. So Holy Spirit, come, open our minds, open the scriptures to us, help us understand the Lord Jesus, for as he said, Speaking of you, he shall glorify me, for he shall take the things that belong to me and make them manifest to you. And we pray in his name, amen. All right, so uh, this is our big idea today. Uh, Jesus is the ultimate example of faith. And there's a lot of theology that goes behind that that I have to quickly unpack for you. Now, uh, before we get started on that, does anyone have those handouts that said the three big ideas in the book of Hebrews. And there are a bunch of uh, extra ones back there in the back, but I gave you a handout one time that said the three big ideas of Hebrews. If you didn't get one in the past, you can get one when when you leave. But just as a quick little oral exam, uh, I mentioned to you that there were these three huge ideas that are the essence of the book of Hebrews. And of course, they're connected, so I'll make them as subsets. And uh, the first one was div- a, a predicated on a need that human beings have. We have a need, human beings have a need to hear from God. And so that was the big first part of the book of Hebrews. What is the author's message? You're just good looking. I'm not. <laughs> you, when I stare at you, don't, don't get freaked out. I'm not asking you to respond. Uh, Jesus as what, in what way? Jesus, the ultimate example of what? God's revelation, God's word. So Jesus is the climax and the author of, I'm just going to put word here, and you read in ultimate, because this is the author's point. Jesus is the ultimate message. He's the final message. There is no more message outside of Jesus. And of course, all the things that Zev went through, you know, Jesus' relationship to angels, to the prophets, to Moses, shows the superiority of Jesus as the final word. Then the second thing that human beings need, they need atonement. And do you remember this word, atonement? I told you it's a made-up word. They just made it up. It comes from the Hebrew root koper, which means to cover and therefore to uh, be able to have a unitedness again, oneness. At one Human beings need at one and Jesus is the ultimate what? 
He's the ultimate sacrifice. So I'm just going to put lamb here just to jog your memories. And of course, then all of the complicated theology that we went through, especially with Melchizedek and the Aaronic priesthood and the Melchizedekian priesthood, all of that relates and is supported by Jesus being the ultimate lamb. And of course, implied within this, <coughs> because of the Jewish thought that runs through it, he's not only the lamb, he's not only the ultimate lamb, but he's the ultimate what? Priest. And as the ultimate priest, once and once only, for all time, only needed to be done once, he took his own blood, shed as the lamb, and as the ultimate priest, he offered his own blood to God, and we'll see that again today. So, he is the ultimate source of at one Once you come into Christ, then you are one with God, not based on your own worthiness, but based on the worthiness of Christ. And then, human beings need what? They, they need a secure foundation for a relationship that's ongoing. Uh, we need covenant, and Zeb did such a brilliant job last week, the difference between a contract and a covenant. Do you all remember that? The lawyers especially, I think, probably really got a lot out of that. Um, so covenant is different in the sense that it transcends contract, and when God makes a covenant with us, it's permanent. So Jesus did what? He made the ultimate sacrifice that provides the basis for what? The new covenant. The new covenant. And of course, this is not intended to be anti-Semitic. It's not anti-Jewish. It's not anti-Hellenic. It's not anti-Italian. It's not anti-anything. This is just a straight-up uh, cosmic truth that God has instituted a new covenant and anybody can come into it, Jews and Gentiles. And how do you get into it? By, 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 you, by something to do with Christ being your Savior. And what's the, the fancy, well not the fancy, what's the big theological word that, that it provides the basis, the entree, the ability to step into the, all of these? Uh, well, uh, well, that's the experience that you have after you step in. What's that? Faith. <laughs> Faith faith. <laughs> so, <clears throat> it's okay. It's Sunday morning and uh, wow, we just had a donut. Everybody had a donut and your head's all jingly right now with sugar. So, so here's, here's the flow. The reason I'm telling you all that is um, we labored uh, through this book uh, because it's difficult, but now we get to the place where it gets personal and existential. Um, the last section of Hebrews, starting at 11.1 and going all the way down to 12.13, is about what? Faith. This is the famous faith chapter. And, and this has got to be one of those chapters that uh, almost all Christians get exposed to at a certain point. Uh, this kind of stuff is a little wordy, tough, have to understand all this background material. That doesn't tend to be taught as carefully, but we jump right here to chapter 11, one of the most famous quoted verses in all of the New Testament. Uh, everyone learned to memorize it in Sunday school. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction, depending on your translation, of things not seen. Faith is the, is, is the holding on to as if it's you had the essential reality already. And it is the pers being persuaded of things that you cannot see. And of course, if you've been listening to Zev all through the course, these things, uh, the heavenly uh, tabernacle, the heavenly priesthood, unfortunately, we say, what? We can't see it. 
So God has given us these patterns. Do you remember the earthly tabernacle and the whole thing? To illustrate what ultimately God was going to do in the, in the spiritual realm. So it requires then faith, according to the author of Hebrews, to be able to step into the experience of these things. And of course, what's happening to the people that are receiving this letter? What's their situation? Does anyone remember it? Do they have faith? Yes, they do. He, that's why he's writing to them. But what has happened to their faith is that they have put their faith in the Lord Jesus as the ultimate word, the ultimate sacrifice, and the institutor of a new covenant, but it has cost them so dearly as Jewish people. Uh, excommunication from their communities, persecution, uh, a lot of trials and tribulations. And I mean, I don't think unless you're Jewish you can really understand that. The closest other cultural equivalent could be when a follower of Islam becomes a Christian. Woo! Do you know what it costs those people? That's it. You're out. In fact, you might even get a little fatwa put on your head. They can kill you. Not all followers of Islam believe that, but that's how serious they take this. You don't just convert out. It's like complete apostasy. And so you get cut off from your Islamic community. You could cut off from your jobs. You're a pariah. This is what was happening to the Jewish people at that time. So now we know in the 21st century, however, that stuff like this doesn't happen anymore. <clears throat> when you become a Christian, boom, all things go well, right? It's like that little diagram. You put Christ at the center of your life, and then everything lines up perfectly. Did you ever see that? Right? And that's <laughs> yes, it's dependent. On yes, this works real good in Kansas, but unfortunately... In the Middle East and in Africa, it's not like that. People become Christians, and many times what happens? Their life gets more troublesome. And this is what is happening to the author of Hebrews. No, it's not an easy life. And so their faith is what? It's shaky. It's wavering. And so this whole letter, which is what you're going to study next week, if you take the handout for today and look on the back, this is actually your final exam. This is what we will cover next week. The seven exhortations of Hebrews. Seven times he gives a thing called an exhortation. I give you a definition of that. But an exhortation, he calls the whole letter an exhortation. An exhortation is when you take God's truth and you so powerfully present it in, into people that they are then persuaded to that place where they then do what? Yes, I really do believe this and I am actually going to go forward. I'm not going to get myself driven backwards into the slough of despond, as uh, John Bunyan would put it. So there we are. Now, what we have to do today, though, is if we're going to have Jesus the ultimate example of faith, we're going to have to make sure that we're going to follow something that Zev has said repeatedly, and I'm starting to have it resonate in my heart when I go to bed at night, which is kind of weird, but to have Zev's voice in my head... No, I don't. I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just tweaking you. He says, I needed a God with a human face to that God. I, ne <clears throat> I needed some kind of human connection. So then now at the end of the book, the author says, now, Jesus, you should look to him because he is the ultimate example of faith. Now, this is what happens to us Christians. We have in our back pocket a thing called the Jesus card. I don't have one with me today because I don't believe in that anymore. But the Jesus card is, you grab back there and you pull it out and you say, well, yes, of course, Jesus. But, but, 
Jesus was God. So if Jesus was God, then it doesn't take long to be a Christian to infer what? You're not. So therefore, implicit in your foundational thinking about Jesus is what? He had a decided advantage, right? You think that is a wrong conclusion? Okay, <clears throat> not wrong that I'm analyzing it this way. No. Okay, of course not, right. So let's go forward now. Is that Jesus card actually relevant? We use it, but I'm going to show you, I hope, right now, that you shouldn't have it in your pocket. You should throw it away once and for all. Here's why. Now let's look at the first passage, or the first thing up here on your handout today. And this is a quotation from the Nicene Creed, which I'm going to... Uh, Read, and just for the record, for clarity's sake, I want to say I wholeheartedly endorse this and believe it. Now, this is speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made being of one substance with the Father. Exactly what Hebrews 1 says, of one substance, of one essence of the Father, by whom all things were made. Jesus was also the creator, who for us, amendation, humans, for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate, put into human flesh, by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made Human, Maleness is not the point. Human. So this passage, the Nicene Creed, written in 325 A.D., which I would say uh, all branches of the entire world of Christendom endorse, just told you what? Jesus is and was and is and always will be God. And at a certain point in time, space, history... The God who always was God, very God of very God, at a certain point in time, space, history, did what? Became one of us. Uh, sort of like undercover boss. <laughs> uh, there's a great song by uh, 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 some hipster in the room group, uh, correct me. Uh, what if God was one of us? Who sang that? Alanis Morissette? Um, you guys aren't hipsters? Google today, what if God was one of us? Nobody in this room knows this song? <laughs> It's a great song. I, I thought it was Alanis Morissette. What if God was one of us? Google it today. So this idea that, that this you know, secular art, artist is taking a, the question, what if God became one of us? What would that be like? What would it look like? And the answer from the Christian point of view is? Who? Joan Osborne, Yes. That's the author of What If God Became One of Us. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Now, what would it look like if God became one of us? The Christian answer is Jesus. So, now we have the great thing. We've fully established that Jesus is the God-man. However, now, because of interest in time, you'll have to check this out for yourself. I gave you the answers. Left box. Jesus was truly and fully human. And, and I give you the essence from these texts selected from the book of Hebrews. You can look them up later just to save time. So, he was full, truly and fully <clears throat> human. And, the God-man, 2.14 through 16, top box, said what? 
He shared fully what? Our humanity in every way. Jesus had chemicals running through his body, had hormones running through his body. He had everything going on in his body that you have going on in your body. He had everything going on in his head that you have going on in your head. Well, not everything, <laughs> but, but everything human. He was a functioning, fully, fully formed human with a human brain, a human psyche, a human spirit, soul, body. And everything that pertains to that human situation, Jesus had. Now, 4, 15 through 16, what does it say? Yeah, Jesus, the God-man, he was tempted in all ways as we are, but we now have a little theological conundrum because go over to James. I will ask you to look this one up, James 1, 13 through 15. And what does it say when you get there? Quick, quick, quick. God doesn't tempt anyone with evil, and in fact, God cannot be tempted. This is called being impeccable. God can't be tempted with evil. It's impossible. There's nothing, there's nothing to respond inside of God to temptation. So now where's our little theological conundrum? How could Jesus be tempted? Because he was God. Yeah. Boom, now you got it. His humanity was tempted, not his deity. So as a human, he experienced temptation on every level and in every way that you do. Think about that, on every level. Now, don't say something in your head to make the metaphor collapse, like, well, was he ever tempted to go to Las Vegas? It wasn't there, but, I mean, you can pick out all, I mean, you want to pick out modern stuff, it's easy. He wasn't tempted by Las Vegas. No, he got tempted in a much bigger way because the Bible says what? That Satan took him to the highest mountain and showed him what? The entire co the whole entire world, everything in the world, of which Las Vegas is one little shot. And he said, look, you can have all of this if you want it because it belongs to me and I give it to whoever I want to. And if you just fall down on your knees and tell me that I'm God, then I'll give everything to you. So if you're ever tempted to go to Las Vegas... <laughs> just realize that the master got tempted on steroids a hundred times more than that. Not that you would ever be tempted to go to Las Vegas. But there are other things that tempt us. And whatever it is, whatever it is, he went through it, okay? In his humanity, he was tempted. Next verse, 5, 7 through 9. He learned obedience. Jesus learned obedience. Well, then the question comes up. He had learned obedience through the things God called him to suffer. He was learning to obey God in the midst of his sufferings. What was learning to obey? God? His deity? No, his humanity. Now, this is hard for people to get in contact because we've seen these pictures of Jesus. He's like Buddha walking in the clouds. He never gets touched by the infirmities of life. He's always like perfectly composed. Is that a true picture of Jesus? No, because when you go to the end of his life, you see him down on his knees, on his face, and he's like almost stroking out and sweating blood. And he's, it says he was in agony. He was really upset. He's not faking. He's not just having a bad day. He's like almost ready to have a mental breakdown. He's so shattered. And no, even, I think this is one thing where G Mel Gibson's book did a movie did a good job because they show Jesus coming out of the garden, and he's a total wreck. And, and John and Peter say, what's, what's, what's wrong with you? What's going on? He says, don't let the others see me this way. Now, that's more realistic of what really he, he went through. Yes? I, I think our problem in the matter is because he was 100% God. He was also one of men. And in math, that number is But <laughs> Don't undo it. Okay, so now I will speak here.
and go forward. So are you getting the feel for what I'm saying? Now look, let's back up now, go back up to the top. So he was truly and fully human and he shared our humanity, right hand side of the box, but God is spirit and what? Omnipresent. So this is what the early Christians had to struggle with. You're claiming that Jesus is God and yet all these attributes that the author of Hebrews puts out makes it quite clear that he was also fully human. This is making, yes. Yes. Yes, you're born in a deprived state, almost like you have spiritual AIDS or something like that. Yes, and so that leads us to the next conundrum, a theological conundrum, that modern theology people, many of them, have tried to lay in the grave, and that would be the necessity for what? The virginal birth of Jesus through Mary, by the process by which God bypassed inherited sin and created, as it were, as Paul calls Jesus in Romans chapter 5, the new, don't break my heart, the new, the new Adam, the new man. I'm going to start all over again with Jesus. No sin, no sin nature. Does this make sense? So, you might say, well, that surely shows that he had a decided advantage. Well, not really. Did Adam sin? So Jesus in his humanity, theoretically, could, he had the choice to sin. He just was the, the second man who did what? Instead of listening to the voice of the enemy, he listened to the voice of God. And you think about that, that's, that's awesome. Now, did he have help? Yes, I'm getting to that. I just want you to notice that when you talk about Jesus, you have to make sure you start talking about the, the right nature. Don't just say, oh, he was God, and therefore he didn't have to go through all of this. The author of Hebrews is showing us what? He went through a lot more than we did. The only question is, does he have an advantage? Did he have something that you and I don't? And I'm going to tell you right now, according to the New Testament, the answer is no. Why do I say that? Next verse. Quickly, quickly, quickly. Number two. Jesus is the God human who did not use his deity to live his human life. Jesus is the God human who did not use his own deity to live his human life. This text says, from Philippians 2, of Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, when did he do that? Before the incarnation, did not regard, did not consider equality with God, which implies what? That he was equal with God, very God of very God, fully God. He did not regard that as something to be clung onto or to hold onto. Instead, what did he do? He emptied himself, and I'm telling you, in my opinion, that what that means is he didn't cease being deity. It means he ceased using his own deity, and put himself in human flesh, and then was going to live life on a new radical pr principle and show humans how to live life. Now, we don't have, we're not God, so, you know, we'll get to that in a second. The, the difference is he was God as well as human. He laid aside his use of his deity and said, okay, I'm just going to live straight up as a man. But he then did what? What does he say at the end of his life? How did he do all of his miracles? How did he do everything that he did? Yes, the stuff that you saw me do, I did not do it. Jesus couldn't have been any more clear. He flat out says, I didn't do any of that stuff. Who did it? God working in and through me did it. 
God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. So what did Jesus do at his baptism? He surrendered himself completely to God. He allowed himself to be completely filled with the Spirit. He surrendered himself to everything that God wanted. And then he lived that ministry life with God doing everything through him and him as a human standing back and saying and doing what? Only one thing. He said, Father, I know you want to do this through me, so do it. I can't do it. I'm just a man. Now, what did Jesus do? He took the the God card, the uh, Jesus card, and did what? I'm not going to use it. I could do it. I could use my own deity. Remember what he said in the garden when they were saying, well, you know, uh, all these people are coming to arrest you? And he goes, don't you think I could snap my fingers and we'd have 10,000 angels here right now? I could do that stuff. Of course, use your divine powers in a way that God did not lead you to use them. Okay. So now, here's where the faith comes in. Ready? How is Jesus the ultimate example of faith? I hate fill-ins, but today I did it. So Jesus did what? He exchanged his human life for allowing God the Father and God the Spirit to instead live in and through him. He said, God, I give you my human life, the life you gave me. I surrender it completely to you. You do anything you want with me. And then he allowed God to live in and through his mind, his heart, his psyche, his soul, his hands, the power that came through him to heal and nurture people. It all came from God. Then, this is another thing hard for Christians to understand. Having come to understand as human and as Messiah via the scriptures and through the Holy Spirit illuminating him, Jesus came to understand that the true portrait of the Messiah as portrayed in the Tanakh in the Older Testament was one of a suffering servant Messiah who would die first as a sacrifice. And you say, why did Jesus have to learn the scriptures? Remember that passage in Luke at the back end of chapter two? It's the last verse. It said, Jesus grew how? In wisdom and in knowledge and in favor with God and humans. So Jesus learned how to do what as a human at the beginning? Papa Joseph did what? Little clay tablet and said what? Jesus, this is how you, this is the first letter. Aleph, say Aleph. Can you imagine? When did kids start talking? If you're lucky. (laughs) Too soon, yes. One, Aleph. Then Papa Joseph says, now say this. Bait, say bait. A, B. I'm going this way because Jews got it right. You guys are not laughing at one of my jokes today. What's going on here? A-B. Now Jesus say, Av. Say Av. That just, that just happens to be coincidentally how you say Father in Hebrew. Abba, Ava. So you learn the first two characters. You learn how to say Av. Then you're off and running. Did Jesus go through that process or did he spring from the womb quoting Isaiah 7:14? Behold, a virgin has conceived. Thanks for laughing. I was <laughs> So now, you have to get in your head. Jesus is a little baby reading the alphabet, learning how to read, learning how to read, hanging out with people to learn how to read, sitting in the synagogue, watching the rabbis, study, study, study. By the time he gets to be 12, he's like a child prodigy. He can sit down in the temple and hold forth with the masters of the law. You say, that, that's because he was God. No, no. That's because why? He was a human 
dedicated to the task of what it means to be a Jew. And he was filled with the scriptures. He studied them. You, I have met 12-year-old geniuses that can just go through the Bible like crazy. They exist. Jesus is one of them. Yes. <laughs> you know, uh, that, uh, I think everybody that studied the life of Jesus has said this is an extraordinarily smart individual. There's no doubt about that. Um, now, if you want to sneak in a quasi-Jesus card and say, okay, God gave him a 240 like Goethe or something, and, uh, you know, okay, I'll accept it. I just want you to know, though, genius or not, he was down here as a little baby drilling through text. He gets to be 12. He's pretty good. How many more years does he have a study before he really starts to hold forth? When he's 30, and, of course, that's what the Greeks said the apex of a man's development was. They said women were basically peaked out at 20, but men hit their uh, golden uh, age at 30. So here you got a man 30 years drilling through the scriptures, and somewhere along the line studying the scriptures, the penny dropped. One, I'm the Messiah. Two, I better find out what the Messiah is supposed to do. And he then studied and found out what? Instead of being prancing into Jerusalem on a white pony, what's going to happen? The Messiah is going to die. And so when he gets to the end of his life, that's why he says to God, uh, paraphrase, postmodern, are you sure about this? We really got to do this for real? I have to go through this for real? I actually have to give my life up to die? Seriously? Have I heard you correctly? Well, now, why would he ask that question if he was God? Or was it a fake for our sake? He sweat blood just to put on a show to let us know how bad it hurt. Uh-uh, Jesus doesn't fake. He's a real human in the garden, in existential despair, in agony. Have I truly heard you correctly? He goes through the whole of his life, all the miracles, the whole training, the text, the scriptures, the spirit, boom, and then he does what? <sighs> Nevertheless, if this is your will, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna let myself get killed. And the faith comes in is that if I let that happen, God promised in the scriptures and through the spirit, what? If I take that step into death, I will be resurrected. Now he's been preaching this to his disciples for three years. The son of man's going up to Jerusalem. They're going to spit on him. They're going to slaughter him, hang him on a tree, and on the third day, I will rise from the dead. Jesus got that from the scriptures, illuminated by the spirit. But when he got up to that point as a man, now does that help you? relate to Jesus a little bit? Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever sit there like that? Now you know how Jesus can really help you because he went through it first. Then he stepped in and had faith. And of course, the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us, whatever shakiness you're going through in your life, look to Jesus. He stepped in and he can give you the power to have the same kind of faith that he had at that critical moment. So, Zev, <coughs> you can forgive me later, but do the best you can. <laughs> okay. Right now, we are coming to what is, for me, the very emotional, indeed, perhaps the visceral heart of the core of the argument of the letter to the Hebrews. And actually, I'm stepping a little bit back from where John was, because what I wanted to do, we've talked about the comparison of uh, the heavenly tabernacle to the earthly tabernacle. We've talked about um, 
the uh, comparison of Jesus to the sacrificial system, the new covenant to the old covenant. But there's one that for me gets me right where I lived as a Jewish person, and that is Jesus as the antitype of the biblical Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. And this is something that I had a very visceral experience of, and so this is for me where it really gets to be um, very personal. So let's begin by reading in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. Can I have a volunteer? Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perform. I need to turn the page. The <coughs> conscience for uh, the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Enough? But when, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Thank you. Okay. All right, what did you hear in by way of comparison and contrast 
that the letter to the Hebrews is drawing here. I do hope you were listening. Spiritual versus earthly. Yeah. Ah! How did he replace the Holy of Holies? Where did he go? Into the heavenly Holy of Holies. Ah! He replaces the earthly Holy of Holies by going into the heavenly Holy of Holies. Now, who went into the earthly Holy of Holies? Who gets to go in there? The high priest. How often? Once a year. When is that? On Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement. It is the only time that any human being is allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. And it was considered such a risky endeavor, as John, I think, has pointed out, that they would tie a rope around the ankle of the high priest when he would go in there so that if he was struck dead for some perhaps secret sin, they could pull him out without going in. And the people in the days when the temple still stood would give loud thanks and praise to God when he emerged alive. This was a risky business. How many people remembered what happened to Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Avihu, when they went in when they weren't commanded to do so? They got burned to a crisp. They got made into a burnt offering. Now, I want us to take a look very quickly. We're running short on time, but we're back in Leviticus, your favorite book of the Bible. I'm in Leviticus 16, okay? In the interest of time, I'm going to read this, not the whole chapter, but I want to hit certain highlights. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark. So that he may not die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way shall Aaron come into the holy place. Will a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering? He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarments on his body, and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. Footnote different from what were worn at any other time of the year. They are simply white linen. He shall bathe his body in water, then put them on, and he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Okay, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord, 
and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it so that they may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Now you begin to get the picture here. Okay. First of all, we have different garments. Second of all, we have a different set of animals. How many animals altogether are we dealing with here? Actually, we're dealing with five. One bull, two rams, and two goats. Okay, the bull, what is that? What is Aaron offering the bull as and for? For himself and his house as a sin offering. Okay, it is a sin offering to make atonement. Now, skip over the goats for a moment. The two rams were burnt offerings. One was for himself and his house. One was for the children of Israel. Both were for atonement. Everything that's taking place here is by atonement. The two goats, this is the fun part. The two goats, initially they are taken as what? A sin offering, two goats. Then he stands them before God at the entrance to the tent of meeting and has lots, one in one hand for the Lord, one in the other hand for Azazel. He doesn't know which one it is. Which means what? The two goats are virtually, they're like interchangeable parts of what? A single sacrifice. Don't think of these two goats as two separate sacrifices. This is a single sacrifice that just happens to make use of two animal bodies. One of them is going to be slaughtered and have its blood, like the blood of Aaron's bull, taken into the Holy of Holies, and they're sprinkled on and before the mercy seat. The other goat is going to have all of the sins of the children of Israel laid on its head by Aaron confessing their sins, and then it's going to be sent out into the wilderness to be released. Now, what's, what's happening here? What's going on? Why take the blood into the most holy place? What has to take place because of the sins of the children of Israel? What? Sacrifice? In particular, what kind of a sacrifice are we talking about? A blood sacrifice? Why the use of blood? It's the life force. You are offering the life force of these animals in the Holy of Holies to make propitiation. Okay? It's one of those words in a lot of mainline seminaries is not very popular. Propitiation. On the other hand, with the other goat, what's being done with that? The scent goat, sometimes called the scapegoat. What's the action there? What? Sent out into the wilderness with what? <coughs> All the sins of the children of Israel, that's expiation. You're taking, you're getting rid of the sins. You're taking all of the sins of the children of Israel, Aaron as the representative of the whole children of Israel, or the high priest in the days of Jesus, laying his hands on the head of that goat, confessing all the sins of the children of Israel on that goat. Now, a couple of other things that went on on the Day of Atonement that you need to know about. First of all, 
It was a fast day, okay? It was a fast day. It was a day of confession also. But when I say fast, I mean this is an absolute fast. Let me tell you how it's done today. If you're an observant Jew, from you, you do have a good meal beforehand, but before the sun goes down, you have to stop eating, drinking, anointing, bathing, wearing leather shoes, and I'm terribly sorry, having sex. And you give that up from sundown on the first evening until dark the next evening, about 25 hours, absolute total fast. The command is there in Leviticus, you shall afflict your souls. You shall afflict your souls. And the second thing, of course, that I've already pointed out is confession. Now, let me give you an idea of what confession is like. Okay? First of all, today, if you are an observant Jew and it's approaching Yom Kippur, you have to realize you have the 10 days of penitence from the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, through Yom Kippur. And prior to that, you have the month of Elul, which is the month of self-examination and repentance. During that time, you have to make a complete accounting of your soul. The Hebrew term is cheshbon hanefesh. You have to try to identify literally every sin you have committed throughout the past year so that you can repent of it. Okay? It is a time of intense self-examination. When you go into the synagogue on Rosh Hashanah and also on Yom Kippur, there is a text called the Unetanatokef. We will observe the holiness of this day, which describes Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, as the day of judgment on which the entire world is judged before God. Who shall live and who shall die? Who shall die before their time and who shall die in their full lifespan? Who by fire and who by sword? Who by flood and who by famine? And even the angels of heaven are arraigned before God. On Rosh Hashanah it is judged, and on Yom Kippur the judgment is sealed. Okay? So this is a very solemn self-examination in time. Now, in the days when the temple stood, you had this scapegoat. You had this ritual to take care of the problem of the sins that you had identified. Since the goats, this is from Maimonides' Mishnah Torah, The Laws of Repentance. Believe it or not, there are actual rules on how you're supposed to repent. Since the goat sent to Azazel atones for all Israel, the high priest confesses upon it as a spokesman for all Israel. As Leviticus states, he shall confess upon it all the sins of the children of Israel. Now, listen to this. This is actually being written almost a thousand years after the destruction of the temple. The goat sent to Azazel atones for all the transgressions in the Torah, the severe and the lighter those violated intentionally and those transgressed inadvertently, those which the transgressor became conscious of and those which he was not conscious of, all are atoned for by the goat sent to Azazel. Now, here comes the catch line. This applies only if one repents. If one does not repent, the goat only atones for the light sins. Okay? Now, none of this may touch you personally. But I remember when I was growing up, I went to a synagogue 
which though the congregation was not really orthodox, we did use the orthodox liturgy, the orthodox Jewish liturgy. And what that means is that on the Day of Atonement, there is worship going on literally all day from morning until dark in the synagogue. And as part of the additional services that you have for perhaps the early afternoon, uh, I didn't used to stay all that length of time, but when I finally did, I got to take part in what was called the Avodah service, which is the service of service. Avodah means service. And what that was was a blow-by-blow description of the liturgy of the Day of Atonement in the temple when it stood. Absolutely everything, including and up to when it said, when the people heard the high priest utter from the, in the Holy of Holies the unutterable and ineffable and unsayable name of God, they would prostrate themselves on the ground, and the entire synagogue would literally prostrate on the ground. Only time a year you ever do it in Judaism. So that became almost an experienced reality. Now comes the crunch part. At present, when the temple does not exist, and there is no altar of atonement, there remains nothing else aside from repentance. Wow. Repentance atones for all sins, and the essence of Yom Kippur atones for those who repent. As Leviticus states, this day will atone for you. So now, you've got to realize you've got this experience every year of what it must have been like when the temple stood. And you've got this idea. Now, this is what could have been done for you if we still had a temple. But now, who's it up to to make this work? It's up to me. I have to repent. And who has reached complete repentance, according to Maimonides? A person who confronts the same situation in which he sinned when he has the potential to commit the sin again and nevertheless abstains and does not commit it because of his uh, uh, repentance alone and not because of fear or lack of strength. Now, let me give you an idea of what you went through also in the way of confession. There are two forms of confession, the short form and the long form. The long form was called the al-chait, for the sin. We used to jokingly call it the I'll hit because I'll hate Shechatanu Lefanecha. I'll hate Shechatanu Lefanecha. I'll hate Shechatanu Lefanecha. You would literally beat your breast at every sin. So let me give you a sample. For the sin which we have committed before you under duress or willingly, and for the sin which we have committed before you by hard heartedness, for the sin which we have committed before you inadvertently, and for the sin which we have committed before you with utterance of the lips. For the sin which we have committed before you with immorality, and for the sin which we have committed before you openly or secretly, for the sin which we have committed before you with knowledge and with deceit, and for the sin which we have committed before you through speech, for the sin which we have committed before you by deceiving a fellow man, and for the sin which we have committed before you by improper thoughts, for the sin which we have committed before you by a gathering of lewdness, and for the sin which we have committed before you by verbal insincere confession. For the sin which we have committed before you by disrespect for parents and teachers, and for the sin which we have committed before you intentionally or unintentionally, and for the sin which we have committed before you by using coercion, and for the sin which we have committed before you by desecrating the divine name, for the sin which we have committed before you by impurity of speech, and for the sin which we have committed against you before you by foolish talk, for the sin which we have committed against you 
with evil inclination, and for the sin which we have committed before you, knowingly or unknowingly. For all these, God, of pardon. Pardon us, forgive us, atone for us. You're only a third of the way through, and you say this confession ten times. Ten times. Is it any wonder that when the letter to the Hebrews say, in these sacrifices, there is only a reminder of sins every year? You cannot imagine what it was like for a person like myself, of relatively tender conscience, who knew full well, when I was Orthodox, everything that God had expected of me, and year after year after year, I found myself beating my breast and confessing in grief and repenting of the same sins I had repented of the year before. And I had that Maimonides text in front of me, which says, if I have this opportunity to commit the same sin and do it again, I haven't really repented, have I? This is spiritual death. This is spiritual death. And then, when I was in the process of becoming a Christian with an open mind, I read this from the letter of Hebrews. Christ has entered once for all into the holy place, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins... He sat down at the right hand of God, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You have no idea what that meant to a person like me. You just cannot imagine to know that Christ had offered himself as a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for my sins and for the sins of the whole world, that he had entered into the heavenly holy of holies, that he is sitting at the right hand of the Father praying for me and you. Now, the privilege that I have is having had the opportunity to really have my conscience roasted to a rich nut brown by that experience. You probably don't have to do that. But what I want you to understand is this. Every single one of us, and this is the important thing again about the new covenant. The new covenant includes you. It isn't just for Jewish people. Every single one of us was dead in our trespasses and sins, and Christ has made us alive because he made the sacrifice that cannot be made by anyone else. He did it in his humanity, as John has pointed out. It was a humanity that was perfectly obedient to the Father, but because he was also the Son of God, that sacrifice literally has infinite value. And what we have to do and what the letter to the Hebrews was telling these Jewish people is don't go back to the dead ways of sacrifices and offerings. Hold on to your faith in what Christ has already done. That's your life. Okay, I can't thank you enough, Sev, and the rest of you. Uh, It's just time to end the class, so... You have enough time to get to church if you're going there. God bless you, and we'll see you next Sunday for your final exam. Don't forget to do your uh, little cheat sheet there, and uh, we will see you next Sunday. God bless you.